Father, we thank you so much for this great opportunity now to dive into your word. And Lord, we know that your word never returns void. That it's either a vehicle to salvation to those who receive it, and Lord, it's also a vehicle to judgment to those who don't. God, I pray as we go dive into your word and study your word, Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray you give us soft hearts. I pray that we would have ears to hear, and that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. Father, I thank you for the privilege to be here tonight. What a blessing it is to be a part of this ministry and just to uh, serve here. And uh, Lord, I ask that you empower me by your spirit to teach with passion and conviction. Lord, bless our night, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. We'll turn uh, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 2. So Ephesians chapter 2 is one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2.10, and can you guys hear me good? Good audio? Good. Okay, good. Well, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are the Lord's workmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll, we'll get you one. But we were created for good works, created with a plan, by design. And, you know, you heard at the end of that fight, you know, that wasn't me speaking. Um, that was the Holy Spirit speaking through me and sitting there, you know, looking at the Showtime cameras. I said, Jesus Christ has a plan for your life. And I'm sure you guys are well aware of that, and you've heard that, and you're familiar with the concept that the creator of the universe has a plan for your life. Now, I don't care how many times you, you hear that, if you really think about it for a second, it's pretty amazing, right? That the creator of the heavens and the earth, he spoke everything into existence with a mere word, has a plan for your life. That's amazing. At least it, it, it amazes me every time I think of it. But if I look back through my life, I didn't always accomplish the will of God in my life. You know, he said, Ephesians 2.10 says he has good works prepared for us before we existed that we should walk in them. It doesn't say that we will necessarily, but it says that we should. They're not concrete. Just because God has a will for your life doesn't necessarily mean you're going to walk in it because He gives you a free will choice to make, to make the decision to follow Him or to, to uh, walk in your will for your life. Anyway, you know, as I, as I look at this, I, just, you know, I, I try to wrap my mind around what was it that hindered me the most through my life in fulfilling God's will for me? What was it that hindered me the most? And it's really, it doesn't take me long to know. I, I, I can bring it down to one simple word. Ultimately, it all came down to pride. Ultimately, that's what the root of it was pride that hindered me the most in my life from fulfilling God's will for my life. And I want to share that with you. I'm going to share a good bit of testimony and how I came to that understanding. But first, we're going to dive into the life of, of Moses, a man who very similarly had pride issues early on, and it hindered him greatly from uh, fulfilling God's sovereign will for his life. Anyway, follow with me. You know, the first, the first ten verses of chapter 2 in the book of Exodus cover 40 years of the life of Moses. And these first 40 years are, are miraculous. I mean, his birth was, he was miraculously saved from dying in the river. Pharaoh commanding all the babies born be thrown into the river. And, uh, and God spared him from the wrath of the waters. He was, you know, you see the hand of God on him clearly from the beginning with Pharaoh's daughter finding him in the river. He floats down. She's taking a bath, you know, just 
happened to be taking a bath in the river, and you know, little baby Moses flows down, and she picks him up. And the Bible says that Moses was a beautiful baby. And, and, and Jewish legend says, in fact, he was so beautiful that when he was born, a bright light shone from him so bright that it blinded everyone in the room. Now, you've got to be good looking to blind people with your looks, right? Oh, you're so good looking, you know. <laughs> but he blinded everybody. They were a beautiful baby. So this beautiful baby's crying in Pharaoh's daughter's hands, and she has compassion for him. What girl in here wouldn't, right? You're holding this beautiful little baby, and he starts crying. She takes him into the Egyptian household, and he's raised in the, in the palace. And he actually, after being adopted into the family, becomes the prime minister of Egypt the number two in command of the most powerful nation in the world. So he is basically the number two man in the world. And he had everything. He had, you know, money was you know, without limit. He could have anything he wanted. He had an education second to none. He was trained in military battle and tactics. Um, Jewish legend says that he led the Egyptians to victory in battle. So he was a military leader. And he had all these things going for him. Now, while he was, you know, high-ranked and had all this going for him in, in Egypt, he was also, he was still a Hebrew. And he had a heart for the Hebrew people, he, and, and, and he knew the Lord. And he had a heart for their slavery and their captivity, and, and they cried out to God, and, and Moses had a heart for that. And somewhere along the first 40 years of his life, he began to get an understanding of what God was going to use him to do. God was going to use him to free the Israelite people from captivity. So this great calling upon his life, just like each of you guys have a great calling upon your life as ambassadors of Christ, and uh, a great calling upon each of your lives, Moses had the same thing. You see him from the very beginning being groomed for very big things. But what happened was along the way, all these you know, all the, all the finances available to him, all the education, all the military training, it all began to creep into his mind and began to become prideful. Pride crept in and he began to think, hey, I'm the man for the job. I can do this. Free the Israelites? No big deal, man. I've got the goods. I've got the stuff. I can do it. So we get to verse 11. And he's 40 years old. Remember the, the mindset here. The mindset of pridefulness and, and self-independence. It says, on one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses goes out, and at 40 years old, he takes the bull by the horn, so to speak, and says, I'm ready to free the Israelites. I know this is what God's called me to do. I'm going to go out and do it. I'm going to do it one Egyptian at a time. So he sees this one Egyptian, and it says, you know, he sees a, he sees a need. He sees an unjust activity taking place, an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves. So he figures, hey, I'm going to take this into my hands. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kill him, and we'll start. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How do you free the Israelites? One Egyptian at a time. So here we go. So he says he looks this way, and he looks that way, and he kills the Egyptian. You know, the problem is he, he looked this way and that way. He didn't look up, however. He didn't even consider the Lord in this monumental task. And what this shows is a, a self-reliance, an independent side of Moses that he said, hey, I don't depend upon the leading of God. 
nor do I depend upon the power of God to do this incredible thing, freeing the Israelites from captivity. So in his own strength, in his own leading, he goes out and kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. What happens? Pharaoh finds out. And, uh, and Pharaoh comes to, to take his life for killing one of uh, Pharaoh's servants, comes to take his life. Moses has to flee the land. He flees the land, goes to Midian, becomes a shepherd. Now, Moses, in his own ability, in his own leading, and his own power, check this out, was completely unsuccessful in burying one little Egyptian in the sand. However, 40 years later, as a much older man, under the leading and power of God, he would be entirely successful at burying the entire Egyptian army in the ocean. <laughs> what a difference it takes when you depend upon the leading and the power of God. Now, we could just stop right there, couldn't we? <laughs> That's, the leading and the power of God, man, that's where it's at. We need to be led by the Lord. We need to depend upon the power of God and the leading of God to do anything of value in our life. You see, it's humility. Understanding that we need the Lord. Here, Moses, he learns a tough lesson because like I said, he flees, he becomes a shepherd. Now, shepherds to the Egyptian people were an abomination. Uh, it was the lowest rung of the ladder, so to speak, on the social ladder, an occupational ladder. So he goes from being the prime minister to an abomination. Quite the demotion, right? And in and, uh, and verse uh, 21, in chapter 2, says that he became content to live with the man. This happens to be his father-in-law. He's content to live with his father-in-law. I don't know if you believe in miracles, but that's a, a miracle right there. He's content to live with his father-in-law. You know that word contentment right there, you know, it's not the type of contentment we imagine it to be. Contentment can be a good thing. Contentment in and of itself is a very bad thing. What does the Bible say about contentment? First uh, Timothy 6, 6 says, Godliness first with contentment is great gain. A lot of people just talk about contentment like that's great. Oh, you got to you know, be content. I know a lot of people that are content and want nothing to do with the Lord. You probably do as well. I know a lot of people content to live completely ungodly lives. I know a lot of people content to walk in, in, in unchallenged habitual sin. And they're content to live like that. And that is eternally deadly. The scriptures are clear. Godliness must come first. And then you can be content no matter what happens in your life because you know God is, is in control and he'll work all things for your good. So this contentment that Moses has, it's not necessarily a good contentment because he is not in God's perfect will for his life. God's perfect will was, I believe, that Moses never end up in this situation. But anyway, he's, he's there because of the decisions he made, and now he's content with being a shepherd and taking care of some sheep. So we get to chapter 3. And it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now he goes, wow, this is crazy. I'm going to check this out. And he walks over to this bush. And truly, this was an amazing sight. I mean, we kind of read it. You know, we have the luxury of just reading the Bible. And we, you know, we know how it all goes. You know, we've read it you know, a lot of times. And yeah, burning bush, so what, right? That's the way we like, no big deal. 
I think it's a big deal. You walk home in the bush that your, you know, your mom and dad went to Home Depot and they bought some shrubbery and they go home and they plant this bush right by the door and you get home tonight and you look at it, it's on fire but nothing's happening to it. And then you hear a voice come out of it, that's crazy, right? That's some crazy stuff. Look, I believe personally that, that, that this wasn't the first time God had approached Moses after the ordeal with the Egyptian and burying him in the sand. I believe God had been coming to Moses time and time again. And he had been knocking on Moses' heart time and time and time and time and time and time again. But Moses had been turning a deaf ear to the Lord. And essentially, as many do, trying to run from the Lord. That never works, guys. You can't run from God. You know, what, did, what did David say? He said, man, I can go anywhere. I can't escape. I can go to the, the deepest parts of the sea. And he's there, you know, with the sharks and the fish, he's there. You know, I can go to the uttermost parts of the heavens where, you know, Pluto and whatever, and, and he's there. I can even go into the depths of hell. You know, you'd think you'd escape God there, right? And he says he's still there too. Basically, the point is you can never escape God. Moses trying to you know, turn a deaf ear to the Lord for 40 years. I believe the Lord was knocking on his heart, tugging on his heart. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Just tugging, come on, man, come on, Moses. I got something great for you, man. And Moses would turn a deaf ear time and time and time and time again. Until God pulled out some pretty radical stuff here. Okay, Bush is going to be on fire. I'm going to start speaking to him from a bush. That ought to get his attention, right? Here's the point. The Lord will do whatever it takes. He'll do whatever it takes to get our attention. And I know much of my life, I was running from God, turning a deaf ear to the Lord, trying to do my thing, and I knew God had a call in my life, and I'm running, man, but I tell you, I, I couldn't run fast enough, right? And he had to pull out some pretty radical things. He allowed me to go as, as low as I had to go. He allowed you know, enough things to fall apart in my life. He allowed me to lose enough love of my life that, that I finally surrendered to him. The point is, he'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are... I believe you're, you're, all, you're all called, man. Many are called. Few are chosen. Many are called. And it's your choice to surrender to the Lord and His tug on your heart. Moses here, man, 80 years old, 40 years of his life wasted. Look, don't waste time. Time is your most valuable asset. It really is, man. Look, I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not proud to say it, but I'm 36. I feel 20... Actually, I... People say I look about 10 years younger. Is that about right, guys, 26? Praise the Lord. <laughs> I look 26, I feel 16. <laughs> That's great. Most people are like, I feel older than I am. No, I feel 16 years old. I'm just not. I'm 36 years old, man. Time like that, man, it's going to be gone. I remember being in high school like yesterday, vividly. And I still feel like I'm in high school. And then I look around, I got four kids, wife, house, you know, all kind of stuff going on, man, responsibility. Your time is fleeting, man. What did James say? He said, life is a vapor. Chances are most of you guys will probably drink a soda tonight, maybe. When you open it up and it goes, Psh! remember, that's life. <laughs> it was here one second and it was gone the next. That is exactly how life goes. You're going to blink. And the next 20 years is going to be gone. If the Lord tarries. I personally don't believe he's going to tarry that long. 
Don't quote me on this, but I'm giving it about five years or less, and we're out of here. So praise the Lord. Come, Jesus. Come, come quickly. Anyway, Moses wasted 40 years of his life, man, turning a deaf ear to the Lord. I encourage you guys not to waste time. But God approaches him from this bush, begins to speak to him from it. We'll pick up in verse 9 in the conversation. God says, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now's the time, man. Eighty years old. You know, you, you never forgot all the education you had in the first 40 years. You had a you know, great education. You went to Harvard, right? And he's never forgot all that. It's gone. You know, all the military training, it's all rusty, man. You know, now's the time at 80 years old. And you would say, you know, why, why would now be the time that God's going to use Moses to deliver the Israelites out of captivity? You know, we, we get great insight into the reason in the next verse. You know, now I'm going to send you. And Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? What do you mean, Moses? Who am I? Forty years earlier, he was the number, first name on the sign-up sheet of Israelite liberators, right? I'm signing up, man. I'm the man for the job. I've got the goods. Forty years earlier, now he's like, who am I? Guys, Humility. We see this humility, this brokenness in Moses. And this is a prerequisite to being used by the Lord. And the good plans we talked about, Ephesians 2.10, those good works that God has prepared for you. How many of you want to walk in those good works? How many of you want to fulfill those good works? You show your hands. Yeah, come on. Don't not, if you're serious, yeah. How many don't want to walk in those plans? <laughs> okay, good. Everybody. Everybody wants to. We all want to walk in the plans God has for our life. You know, you know I love the way C.T. Studd put it. C.T. Studd was, a, he was a, a cricket player from England, a very wealthy guy, very talented guy. He was a superstar in England. This was years ago. And um, he, he gave his life to the Lord and left cricket playing, left his millions, took, actually took all of his money, much of it he inherited, much of it he earned, took all that money and invested in the ministry. And he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Nothing else really matters. Of course, we have this you know, little bit of time here, but everything eternal, that's what really matters. Jesus would put it this way, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. We've got to live for the eternal, man. And, and here, you know, now God calls Moses to accomplish his will. If we're going to accomplish God's will for our life, humility is a prerequisite. I'm talking, not talking false humility. Not, not false humility, oh, I'm not worth anything, I'm nobody, I'm, you know, God can never use me. That's false humility. Genuine humility is simply saying, I know it's, it's a genuine dependence on the Lord, on his leading and on his power to accomplish his will for your life. That is true humility. Just depending upon God, knowing you need the Lord, knowing you shouldn't get, you know, do anything apart 
from his leading and his direction. That's true humility. Anyway, guys, similar to Moses, early on in my life, I was being groomed for very big things like Moses. From the start, you know, um, coming out of an amateur boxing career, 18 years old, I had uh, about 150 fights as an amateur. I had a number two world ranking. Um, I won a silver medal in the Goodwill Games in Madison Square Gardens on HBO. And I come out of this amateur boxing career and I signed with a, a, pro a professional boxing promoter from London, England named Frank Warren. And he was essentially grooming me to be his world champion superstar, Ricky Hatton. So they were grooming me to take over Ricky's, you know, uh, uh, um, legend, so to speak. And I had my pro debut uh, on HBO at the Fox in Detroit, uh, June of 2000. And uh, I come out to fight a guy named Juan Thompson. I knew Juan Thompson. He was a tough guy and uh, a good opponent. But uh, 60 seconds into the first round, I hit him with a big left hand and knocked him out cold. And my career was off to a quick start. I had 16 fights in the, uh, in the next 12 months, a really fast pace for a pro boxer. And, uh, you know, I, I was what I would call a nominal Christian. I wore the banner of Christ, but there was no genuine humility and brokenness and and, uh, and walking with the Lord and serving the Lord faithfully. It was just, a, I just wore the banner. I, 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 played, I played Christian, you know. And, um, but every one of those fights, all 16 of my, my first 16 fights, I, would, I had kind of a tradition, so to speak. Nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. But I had a tradition. Every fight, before the fight, I would go into my dressing room and I would pray. In all 16 fights, I would go into the dressing room and I would, I, would, I, would do so, I would do a good practice. The Bible says to examine oneself. Self-examination. You know, it's, it's the only self thing that's good. <laughs> self-pride, self-empowerment, everything self is bad except self-examination. The Bible says to do that. And I would go in my dressing room and I would examine my life and my walk with the Lord and I would see it full of sin and full of just wretched stuff, man. And I would cry out to God. I would say, Lord God, forgive me. Forgive me, man. I'm a, I'm a messed up dude. Lord, forgive me. And, uh, and then I would make a deal with God. And Lord, if you'll just get me through this boxing match, man, if you'll get me through and let me win this fight, I'll surrender everything to you. <laughs> Anybody ever made a deal like that with God? Yeah, a lot of us, man. We're like, come on, Lord, just get me through this difficult situation I got myself in. And man, I'll surrender everything to you. And and the Lord, He saw me through all 16 fights. And did I ever surrender to Him? No. <laughs> I kept holding on to Ebo, you know. And, um, and why did the Lord see me through all those fights? Because His mercy and His compassion is brand new every single morning. I'm thankful for that. But I got to my 17th pro fight. And this was a big fight for us. I... Um, I had a, a seven-figure Showtime contract on the table. All I had to do was be a, a veteran opponent, a guy I could beat, Ubaldo Hernandez. I beat Ubaldo Hernandez. I signed the contract. I'm an instant multimillionaire. I can buy my yacht, my Bugatti Veyron, and my, you know, my, my big house and live on a yacht in South Beach, Miami. Ride jet skis all day, right? The American dream. I had it all figured out which is a waste, by the way. But anyway, but I got to this fight, and I had recently started serving a lot at church. 
I attended church all the time. I went more than my pastor went. You know, I, I'm, I'm doing a lot at church. I, I'm going through the motions of Christianity. I'm not necessarily doing anything to build a relationship with Jesus. You know, I'm just going through the motions. And because of that, I went into my dressing room to pray as I usually did, and my prayer changed dramatically. Instead of crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, forgive me. Pour your grace and mercy out in my life. I said, Lord, I've done enough. I've done enough. You'll see me through this fight. I remember I got done praying, went out, went into the sold-out Savannah, Georgia Civic Center, got up in the ring, the bell rung, we start fighting. 60 seconds into the first round, Ubardo Hernandez hits me with a big right hand, and I'm hurt bad. And I go down. I remember when I got up, the referee ran over and looked at me, and he stopped the fight. It was over. I believed I had done something to earn, you know, favor from God. I believed I deserved a win. I was the man. I, 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 I had done so much. I served at church, you know. Uh, I set up chairs, and I, I, I attend church, and I fold bulletins. I deserved it, I felt. And, um, and when the referee ran over and stopped the fight, man, it's like the Lord said to me, Ebo, it's not about what you've done. It's not about what you've done, but it's about what I've done. It's not about who you are, it's about who I am. And you know, Colossians says that Jesus holds everything together. He holds everything together, physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything's held together by Jesus. And literally, the pride in my life, believing I had, I, I deserved favor from God, I, I deserved, I could do it, that pride had pushed the Lord out of my life, and everything began to crumble apart. And me and my wife, we moved from Atlanta, Georgia, fleeing, you know, fleeing our problems, moved to Manhattan, New York. Right after, three weeks after 9-11, everybody's moving out, we're moving in. And we move into Manhattan, and I lived on the Upper East Side, 63rd and 1st. And, you know, what? a city full of millions of people became a wilderness to us. And this, this was a very difficult time where I tried to get my boxing career back on track, but, uh, but nothing worked. I eventually left boxing, went back to my prior trade of construction. Eventually, we couldn't afford to live in Manhattan any anymore, so we moved back to Atlanta. And I go back to construction, and I, I give up on all the big dreams. See, I believed at one time God was going to use my life in the sport of boxing. I believed that God was going to use me to impact the boxing world, but I gave up on all those, those dreams, and like Moses, I became content, <laughs> even at times to live with my father-in-law, believe it or not. <laughs> But, um, but I, I forgot about all the boxing dreams. I walked away from the Lord and, um, and just let go. Left all that behind. Three years later, I, uh, I was working on a construction site, and uh, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine. He, he knew the Lord, walked with the Lord. He served at church. He was a pastor. And uh, he called me and said, Ebo, man, I had a dream last night. And in my dream, God spoke to me and said that you are going to fight again. You're not only going to fight again, but instead of doing it for your glory, for your accolades, you're going to do it for the glory of God. And the initial immediate response out of my mouth, I said, man, who am I that God would ever use me? Who am I that God would ever use me, especially in the sport of boxing? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a washed up old has-been. I'm a, I'm a wannabe, man. Who am I? 
See, I had reached the same place Moses reached. A place of brokenness. I knew that if God used my life for anything, it wasn't because of me. It was because of Him. Right? Sure enough, man, the Lord, I, I, I accepted God's call back to come to Him and to come back into boxing. And um, it was 10 months later that I was the number five ranked lightweight in the world. Uh, shortly after that, I fought on a reality show called The Contender on ESPN. And in January 2007, the Lord, Lord called me out of boxing and threw me into a, a life of full-time ministry. <laughs> Certainly the Lord's ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans, nor are His thoughts. His ways are much higher. Amen? Much higher. See, if I had my way, what would I be doing right now? I'd be living on a yacht in South Beach, Miami, riding jet skis all day. Instead, guys, check it out. I get to be here with you tonight. That's better. Much better, man. This is better. You know why? Because that is a waste of a life. Jesus said, why do you labor for things that perish? Jet skis, they perish. Right? Uh, they, they're presently perishing. Yachts? presently perishing. Big houses, Bugatti Verons, they're all perishing, man. It's a waste. He said, labor for that which lasts under everlasting life. I get to invest into eternity hanging out with a bunch of high schoolers. How cool is that, man, right? That's so cool. So much better. But it took that I get to this place of brokenness first to say, Lord, who am I that you would ever use me? And I, that's my personal motto, who am I? Because, <laughs> look, I realize, guys, anything the Lord does through our ministry, it's nothing to do with me, I can assure you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God for His people. But Moses got to that place, I got to that place, each and every one of you guys will have to get to that place to accomplish what God desires for your life. Moses got there. He says, Lord, who am I? I love God's response back in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 12, Moses said, Who am I? God said, I'll be with you. I love it. Who am I? Who am I, Lord? And I imagine Moses expected to hear a response of, of, of his identity or of some nature, and God says, I'll be with you. The point is, it's not who are we, who am I, it's who's with me, Right? If He is with us, who can be against us? Exactly. Moses said, who am I? God said, I'll be with you guys. It's not who we are. What we have to bring to the table is, is God with us. And certainly nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But sin, pride, separates us from His will, separates from His protection, from His blessing, from His favor. It separates us from the Lord. You know, the Bible puts it this way, that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Who am I? I'll be with you. I love, I love Moses' next question. Then he says, verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is His name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am... Who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses asked a logical question. What's your name? 
Who do I tell them to send me when I come to them and say, your, your God has sent me to deliver you guys? What do I say when they ask me what his name is? Now, granted, at this moment, God could have simply responded, don't worry about it, buddy, they're not going to ask. Right? Because they never asked. Of course, God knew they weren't going to ask. What's going on here? You know what's going on? Moses had a genuine desire to know more of God. He comes to the Lord and asks a genuine question, Lord, what's your name? And God responded. He didn't have to because they'll never ask, but he, but he honored Moses' desire to know more of him. And this is the way it works. The Bible says no man seeks God, but that God must reveal himself to us. So any understanding of God we have, it comes by his supernatural revelation. And if you go to him with a genuine, pure, pure heart and say, Lord, I genuinely desire to know more of you. Show yourself to me. And you do it with the intent to follow up accordingly and obey him and walk with him as he reveals himself. Guess what? He will. Absolutely, he'll honor that desire. He does for Moses and he says, I am. I am. What, what, what I, uh, this is awesome, man. This is the covenantal name of God with the uh, Israelite nation. Uh, we call it a tetragrammaton. It's Y-H-W-H in the original language with no vowels. Uh, later would be uh, lengthened and vowels added to be Yahweh. But, 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 but just a simple I am. It's an amazing... Um, an amazing phrase, an amazing word, amazing name for God. I am. Now, the eternal nature of the I am statement, it blows me away. Because it means that there was, you know, there's no end to God. Which I kind of get, because there's no end to any of us. Of course, there's an end to our physical body, but we're, we're not bodies. We have bodies, we are spirits. There's no end to our spiritual uh, existence either with the Lord or apart. So I kind of get the no end part, but it also means that there is no beginning to God either. And that's hard for me to wrap my little sheep-like mind around, right? No beginning to God. You know what that means? I can travel back through history one million trillion years. And I'm no closer to the beginning of God than when I started. Whoa. <laughs> Maybe that just blows me away. I don't know. Some of you guys are like, so what? <laughs> Who cares, man? So <laughs> it blows me away, okay? No beginning, no end. Wow. But this statement, you know, it's eternal in essence, but it's not an eternal statement in and of itself. It's a present tense statement. God didn't say, I was, or I'm going to be. He said, I am. What does that mean? Guys, this is all we get. We can't do anything about our past. I've tried and I've, I've failed every time. I can't change my past. Time machines do not work, right? And I'm not promised tomorrow. I'm not promised 10 seconds from right now. This is the moment. You know, I, I would refer to this moment as the sacred now. And God is the God of the sacred now. And he says, I, I am. Tomorrow, God won't be I, I was. Tomorrow, he'll still be the I am. He's the God of the sacred now. He's the God of the moment. That means he's available. Look, I know a lot of you guys have had, you know, people unavailable to you 
in the most needy times. I know you've had people let you down in the most desperate of times. I know you've had people hurt you when you were already knocked down. But God says to you, I'm, I'm available now. I'm dependable now. I'm faithful now. I'm the God of the sacred now. That's good news. When God made that statement, you know, God's omniscient. He knows all things. Of course, He knew. The I am statement would be too big for my sheep-like mind to grasp. It's too big, man. I can't fully understand it. You know, that's about the time I would have got kicked out of the Bible. Because God would have said, Ebo, I am. And I would have said, you are what? You know? <laughs> what are you talking about? You're out. Get out of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to use Moses instead. I would have, it's hard for me to grasp at such a statement. And also, it's a much better form of communication is showing somebody something, not telling them. Right? We, we often say talk's cheap, don't we? Somebody says, oh, I, I love you, I genuinely care for you, and you turn around and they stab you in the back, and you know, you know, talk's cheap, right? Of course talk's cheap, God knows that. So what did he do? Well, 1,800 years after the burning bush experience, God did an amazing thing. He took on a human body. He took on a body of flesh. Great is the mystery. He got with a body of flesh. He was born in a manger. He lived a sinless life. And at about 30 years old, Jesus began his public ministry. And he came onto the scene and he had seven I am statements. And he said, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, he came on the scene and Jesus ultimately completed the statement that God made at the burning bush. He completed it in word and He completed it in deed. He lived it out. He showed us. He, he told uh, Philip, he said, you've seen me for so long, you know, how can you ask to see God when you've been with me the whole time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in word and deed, Jesus completed this statement perfectly. And as we look to Him, we see perfectly who God is. I have no doubt that many of you guys come in here with all types of situations going on in your life, all types of baggage and hardship and struggles, difficulties going on, hurtful things, I have no doubt a room this many people in here, we have lots of stuff going on. And you know, we would say to the Lord, you know, I, I need fill in the blank. I need someone who cares. I need someone who can help me out. I need a pat on the back. I need forgiveness. I need grace and I need hope. I need strength. I need love. You know, I, I understand the thought there. But I would say to every one of those situations, no, you don't. All you need is Jesus. Because He would come here tonight and He would look every one of you guys in the eye and say, I am anything you could ever possibly need. I am. 
I'm everything you'll ever need. Because that's who Jesus is. And He's available to us. He says, those who are weary and heavy laden and burdened by life, come to Me. Come to Me and I will give you rest for your souls. He gives us that invitation. But what must come first? A genuine brokenness? A genuine humility? A repentant heart? Coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you.